Father, we come to you this morning. We come giving our praises. We lay before you all of the good things that have come from your hand. We, we pray that you would open up our eyes to see even more that all of the things that we enjoy, all of the things that bring us life and peace, that those things are free gifts from the hand of a God who loves us and knows us and desires more for us than we could ever imagine. We pray, Father, that this morning our heart would slowly but surely begin to align more and more with your heart, that we would love the things that you love and hate the things that you hate, that we would be kingdom people, that our deepest desire would be to see your will happen here around us on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you for your son. We thank you for his life and his teachings and his death and resurrection. We thank you for the revolution that he began, this this revolution of love and transformation and redemption that we find ourselves a part of. We, We thank you for the spirit that has come into our lives to enact that redemption and renewal. We pray that that same spirit would come and speak to us this morning, that we might be more conformed into the image of your son and that we might be more prepared to go out into the world and um, share the good news of what you are doing in your creation, recreating it, making all things new. As we open up the scriptures this morning, we pray that you would speak to us, convict us, challenge us, and prepare us to be your people in this world. And it's in your son's name we pray all things. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you again. Welcome. My name is Mike Skinner, the lead pastor here at the church. Let me invite you to open up with me to the chapter of uh, Matthew chapter 5. We are in the middle of a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount called the King's Speech. This is the most famous sermon that Jesus gave um, for um, circles like the one that I run in for, for churches kind of like ours, the Sermon on the Mount, is kind of like the holy grail for what it means to be a Christian, um, for what it means to be someone who is truly devoted to Jesus. Not just the idea of Jesus, not just the idea of forgiveness or the idea of grace, but to the actual one who came to bring forgiveness and to bring grace and to bring freedom. And and, and we recognize at the church that Jesus came so that we might walk in this kind of new freedom, so that we might experience the kingdom that he's come to inaugurate. And what we find in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus giving us kind of a blueprint for what it means to be citizens in that kingdom. He has previously told us that he has come not to get rid of the law, not to get rid of God's instructions for his people, but instead um, to clarify it for us, that our righteousness, our commitment to God's desires for our lives shouldn't be decreased because of Jesus and his work, but should actually be increased. And he has been showing us exactly what that looks like, and we'll continue to um, go through those passages this morning. Um, This morning we are going to look at a passage where Jesus talks about adultery, lust, sexual sin, and how we might, as kingdom citizens, live into a world that is often trapped and distorted and destroyed by such things. I've been a pastor here since 2009, and as I look back over my time here, there are lots of highlights and lowlights. Some of the best things that have happened to me uh, as a human being just in my lifetime have happened because of the joy that I've been given to be a pastor. Um, Whether it's 
baptisms or whether it's celebrations or whether it's seeing life change or whether it's seeing an aha moment in someone's life or, or seeing someone who didn't understand Jesus and, and the beauty of the kingdom, finally having it click and understand. Um, there are these things that kind of give you joy and fuel and um, kind of prepare you to, to keep going, these highlights. At the same time, being a pastor involves a lot of heartbreak. Uh, being a pastor exposes you to some of the worst things that there are in humans and in humanity and, and some of the worst tragedies that human beings can commit to one another. Um, and as I was studying this passage today, some of those things came back to me. Um, you know, on, on a count, uh, if I were to kind of list out maybe some of the more tragic moments of my time being a pastor, they all have one thing in common, which is that they deal with the fallout or the consequence of someone taking sex or sexual activity and distorting it. Um, And for privacy's sake and um, just because of some of the listeners we have here this morning, I I won't get into too many details, but I've I've sat in my office back there years ago and heard some of those heart-wrenching stories that I've ever heard. Um, And I've seen people who have been more destroyed than I ever knew a human being could be destroyed um, because of, um, again, this gift of sex uh, that God had given creation, um, being distorted, being manipulated, being forced uh, onto people. And Jesus is nothing if he's not relevant. Sometimes we, we think of Jesus as being this like pie-in-the-sky type character who comes, and he, he really has no idea what it's like to be a human being with the sweat and the grit and the drama and the nastiness of what it means just to live and to get by. And anyone who reads the, the Gospels and sees what Jesus addresses realizes he fully knows. He's fully aware. And so we're in the middle in the Sermon on the Mount of a series of what we call theses and antitheses, where Jesus is going through a list of important topics, and he has this formula that he employs. He says, you've heard it said, And he'll give this command from the Old Testament, this kind of traditional righteousness, a a kind of marker that the Hebrews of the time held up as their faithfulness. We we don't do that, and so we're faithful and we're obedient to God's purposes for our life. But he'll follow that up with an antithesis. He'll say, but I tell you, and he gives something new, something fresh. And we'll see over and over again, the new thing that he says doesn't get rid of the old thing, He says, I haven't come to abolish what you've heard before, but I've come to deepen it. I've come to, in a sense, raise the bar. I've come to bring you back to God's ultimate purpose for the instructions he gave humanity to form a community that would flourish, to form a society where people might find all the love and joy and peace that I uh, created and intended to be found in creation. And so last week we looked at murder. Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't murder And if you murder, you're liable to judgment. But I tell you, whoever's angry at his brother, whoever insults his brother, is liable to the flames of hell. And we go, well, it's easy to say I haven't murdered, most of us. But it's a lot harder to say I don't get angry. I don't harbor that anger. And Jesus goes, no, but it's that that heart response that we all feel. 
It's that which leads to this destruction in human community. It's that which leads to this destruction inside of ourselves. And then the kingdom that God is bringing through Jesus, the Spirit is bringing solutions to these cycles of anger so that you and I might walk in peace and reconciliation. And today he tackles another topic. He says this in verse 27. You've heard it was said, here's his thesis, you shall not commit adultery. Now this word adultery is a little bit tricky. We hear adultery, we naturally think of having relationships with someone who's not your spouse. Um, The word does mean that. It's kind of an umbrella term, um, which means it stands for really any unacceptable sexual activity, which if you are a history buff, no, that changes over time, right? Um, Again, we'll go into too much detail, but 50 years ago, if you went to an independent Baptist fundamentalist church and said, what is exceptional sexual behavior, the list would have been very narrow. It would have been a very cultural list, right? And today, most of us are like, well, no, okay, maybe, maybe a little bit more is okay. Maybe God's not like a, a super prude, American, like 30s person who thinks things just have to happen this kind of one way. But it's an umbrella term. What, what's, what's wrong? It's kind of cultural. Um, it's fair to say, though, that adultery for the Hebrews in the first century meant any kind of illicit sexual activity inside and outside of marriage. We have to mention here something that's important, although complicated, which is, I taught high schoolers for a long time, teach college now, and and I often get this question, what does the Bible say about sex before marriage? I grew up hearing, right, if you had sex before marriage, it's the one-way ticket to hell, okay? There's nothing worse you could do in your entire life than that. Um, And I struggled always to find a Bible verse that said that. And I had teachers and youth pastors who would show me verses and give me logic, and it just never really would quite add, add up to me. Um, as I grew older, as I studied the Bible, as I got my master's degree, I figured out there's a historical reason for this. Because most people at the time are getting married before they hit puberty, or at the same time that they hit puberty, right? It's just not an issue for them. I'm sure it happened, right? I'm sure it was an issue for certain people in certain communities, but definitely not big enough an issue for them to write about. The bigger issue was once you were married, will you stay faithful inside of that relationship? Now this not only creates interpretation problems when we study the Bible, it creates cultural problems for us now. As someone who has taught high schoolers, as someone who speaks to them regularly at retreats and camps, as someone who teaches college students, people post-pubescent who are not married yet for the largest part, This is a new temptation that we are giving them. Where we have now said, because of all kinds of different things, cultural largely, God has wired your body at this age to want nothing more than to engage in these activities with certain people, but we're going to make you wait for 10, 15, 20 years until we are going to say that that's okay for you to do. Um, Now, You can have different opinions on this. We can all acknowledge it's a problem. It's a new problem for us. And I can say this as someone who, there's a little bit of writing, lots of speaking, interacting with these people, um, our pressure on these children to not do these things until they get married does not work. It really does not work. I've written this a couple times online. I got some feedback um, from it, not positive Largely, 
The response, though, is just, it doesn't matter if you're mad about it. It's just the truth. They might not tell you, obviously, because of these comments you're putting online, but I sit down across the table from them. And guess what? Yeah, your threats of hell aren't stopping them. And biologically, there's some big reasons for this, right? I mean, God literally wired their bodies to hit this age and want to do this. And we've created this huge impediment um, beyond them. And so we've got to find some other solutions to this, whatever they might be. Um, And so when we see adultery here, we're thinking most likely sexual relationships outside of marriage, although um, it's fair to include inside or outside of marriage, anything um, not uh, a biblically acceptable form of, of sexuality. We also need to remember that adultery, biblically, is a capital punishment, just like murder. Jesus is not taking on little things here. It's not like you've heard it said, don't break the speed limit. But I tell you, go 10 miles under and don't text while you drive. You've heard it said, don't murder, capital punishment. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, capital punishment. Fair to say more people committed adultery, both then and now, probably then, murder. Um, but it definitely was a, a, a punishment um, worthy of um, death um, in the, the, the scriptures in the Old Testament. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, you, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, here's his antithesis. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, if you have never had the pleasure to read this for the first time to 13 and 14 year old boys and see the look of horror, <laughs> abject horror on their face, you are missing out. <laughs> Immediately, we think this is absurd. I mean, we like to pretend we're not sexual beings. None of us have lust issues. None of us see an attractive person and go, oh, they're mildly attractive. But Jesus just took, right, sleeping with someone who's not your spouse and says, every time you've seen someone and you've had a lustful intent towards them, you have committed adultery. This is big time. Jesus elevates the bar. Jesus goes more towards the heart of the intention. Just like with murder, Jesus starts with kind of the beginning of what we might call a vicious cycle. You don't get to adultery without first having lustful intentions. No one like trips their way into an adulterous relationships. They, they, they first see something they like, right? And then they organize different situations and encounters and activities, and then all of a sudden you end up with this community-destroying, life-destroying, family-destroying, adulterous relationship. If anyone sees a woman, remember this is a patriarchal society um, where largely it was men looking at women. Um, we would just as easily be able to say a woman looking at a man um, and, and sees them um, with lustful intent. He follows it. He says, if, you're, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is a very graphic illustration as a solution to the problem that Jesus has given. Often again, 
we read the scriptures, and especially if you've heard it before, and we kind of lose the graphicness of it. Um, and, and one of my goals in our series on the Sermon on the Mount has been to just try to get you to read things for the first time again, right? Be a kid and, and read this and try to imagine this. This is for anesthesia. This is for really like well-thought-out surgeries. There was no LASIK back then. If you wanted to take your eye out in the first century, this was a messy this was a messy procedure. This involved a lot more fortitude than I will ever have. But Jesus says, look, if, if you have an eye that's causing you to commit adultery by having lustful intent at a gaze, rip it out, gouge it out, take your hand, pull it out until it's not there anymore. If you have a hand that's causing you to commit these problems, cut it off. 127 hours, that thing. Just nod it until it's not there anymore. There would have been laughter probably when Jesus said these things. I mean, this is why I've been going a little bit over the top with this, right? We, we so sanitize the Bible. We're like, oh, of course, that's sage wisdom from Jesus. <laughs> but this is what Jesus is saying to you. If you have eyes that make you look lustful to other people, cut them out. I've got scissors in my office. We can make a line after church. If you've got hands that are causing you problems, get rid of them. And while Jesus is obviously being hyperbolic here, just like he is with the murder and the anger when he says, look, if, if you remember you have something against a brother when you're about to offer a sacrifice to the temple, go back and make it right before you offer the sacrifice. This would have meant like taking a week off, leaving your animal at the temple court, walking three days back to Galilee, finding that person in the village. A little hyperbolic, right? Probably not a lot of people actually experiencing this. While this is hyperbolic, what I've always loved about this passage is it's still true. If you take the stakes that Jesus is laying out seriously, judgment, if your choice is between Continuing to lust after people, which Jesus says is a cycle that leads to destruction and adultery, or saving yourself from judgment, would it not be worth going blind? Would it not be worth losing your hands? I mean, I think for Jesus, the answer, while macabre, is... It would be. It'd be better for you to never hold your child again because you had no hands. It'd be, never, it'd be better for you to never hold the hand of your grandchild than for you to experience God's judgment over being unable to be sexually faithful and obedient. It'd be better for you to never experience the beauty of a sunrise again than for you to experience God's judgment over your inability to be sexually obedient. Now, of course, cutting off appendages and and taking out your eyes doesn't really solve the problem, does it? Your hand is not the prime prime indicator, causality of, of your sexual temptations, and neither is your your eyes, perhaps they'll play a bigger role. It's, it's a heart issue, right? It's a person issue. You can cut off a lot of things, but 
you're still messed up on the inside. Jesus is talking, though, about removing temptations. Um, Jesus uh, has this thesis, antithesis, and then he gives us two examples. I argued last week that we misread the Sermon on the Mount and often lots of the ethical instructions in the Sermon on the Mount when we read them in a structure of two, thesis and antithesis, which is how most scholars, preachers will preach and read these passages. Because what it forces us to do is we focus on the second one, right? And on the second one, we start to think that Jesus is so out of touch with the reality that it has nothing to do with our lives. So the murder and the anger. Jesus says, you've heard it said don't murder. I tell you, if you're angry, you're liable to judgment. And we go, guess what? You cannot be a human without being angry. We get angry so often, all the time. It's an instinct. It's not even a choice necessarily we make. And so we must think Jesus either doesn't know what it's like to be a human or wants us to live in a perpetual feeling of shame and guilt and inability to do what he wants us to do. Or he's giving us such an impossibly high ideal that we shouldn't even try to it and should just beg him for forgiveness. That Jesus is not actually giving us a way forward into the kingdom. But what I've argued and will continue to argue is that Jesus actually teaches in what we might call triads, um, in, in three structures. He gives us traditional righteousness. You've heard it said. He identifies the, the heart of the problem, a vicious cycle. And then there's crucially a third step where he actually gives us imperatives, things to do, what we might call transforming initiatives. He gives us actions to take to walk out of these vicious cycles. It's what he did with the murder and the anger. He never says, don't be angry. He says what? Go and reconcile with your brother. Go and make friends with your enemies. That's something we can do. That's something if we do do, if we do practice, we'll find ourselves walking out of this vicious cycle of anger that leads to um, broken relationships, that leads to murder at its most extreme. And here Jesus gives us that as well. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, if you look with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery in your heart. It's important to note here, um, your ESV, the translation I'm reading out of, does this pretty well. The emphasis in the Greek is on intent. It's not on the moment of attraction. Jesus is not saying if any of you has eyes that find other people attractive. He's saying, um, if any of you have eyes that gaze with intent, one translation says, if any of you look at people with the desire to make them yours. It's a much more active process. Do you see the difference there? Jesus is not saying you can't notice beauty. You can't have that moment where you go, oh, that looks, that looks nice. It's the, it's the intent. It's the gaze. It's the gaze that then leads to further thoughts and fantasies and encounters, and actions, and then again, ultimately, adultery. He says, if you look with intent, and then he gives you things to do, things to cut off this road to adultery. He gives you transforming initiatives um, that would prevent, would forestall the descent into sexual sin demanding sacrifice, radical sacrifice, for the purpose of avoiding occasions to sin. You know, in the scriptures, multiple times we're told to flee sexual sin. Paul does this 
a couple times. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse um, 18, he says this, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. This is an action verb, right? Paul doesn't say, look down upon sexual morality. Paul doesn't say, do your best to try not to think about it. Just flee, run. The imagery is of um, Joseph uh, and, and Potiphar's wife. Do you remember this? She takes off his clothes, and, and what does he do? He runs. He sprints away from it. The, the passage we get in the Sermon on the Mount is one that underscores the seriousness of sin. It's not something to be played around with. A lustful gaze, an intent, fantasy in the mind is not something simply to be enjoyed. It's not something to not imagine will one day grow up and perform acts of death in your life and in your family and in your community and in your neighborhood and in our world. And again, I'd, I'd, I'd just love to be able to tell you stories where, where this happens. And the people in my office confessing that they've done things um, that they cannot tell their wives, that they cannot tell their children, um, that things they, they never thought that they would have done, things you hear in the news, not the things you hear in your community, are people who never thought that they would ever be there. You get that, right? The person, the mugshot that you see on the news tonight, is not a person who five years ago in church was like, yeah, that's probably me if I keep doing this. I'm not trying to like fear monger you here. I'm just saying no one ever, no one plans to go down these roads, right? That's why Jesus says you stop these cycles now. Because the kingdom of the world sucks you in and performs destruction. That's its, that's its outcome. The kingdom of God has come to set you free. That takes initiative and it takes action. And it takes obedience. In 2 Timothy, Paul says something similar. He says flee sexual morality in Corinthians and 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 says, flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee the passions and then pursue the things of God, righteousness. Jesus says, if your right hand is causing you to sin, if your eye is causing you to sin, cut it off. Get rid of it. Prevent this cycle that is happening to you. We live in a world full of um, we might call starter points for this road to adultery, for this road to sexual sin inside and, and outside of marriage. And it's all around us. And I'm not one of those naysayers who think the world's worse than it's ever been before. I get those emails. I talk to those people, and they act like sexual perversion is something we invented, you know, after Ronald Reagan left his presidency. <laughs> all of a sudden, we came up with all these bad ideas. <laughs> it's been pretty bad for a pretty long time. Just about all the evil things you can imagine are written in graphic detail in ancient, ancient, ancient texts. In a lot of ways, things have gotten better, actually. The world more unanimously looks on certain actions as negative in a way that they did not, not too long ago. Um, but there's lots of um, 
lots of room for us to grow here. There's lots of room for us to, to move closer towards the kingdom of God um, as it comes to this. Jesus says to, to cut off these distractions, to, to get away from things that might um, lead us into this vicious cycle. Um, what this means for, for us, ways we might practice this, ways we might apply this, um, I think the first and perhaps overused, I almost hate to even mention, is accountability. It's community. It's, it's being honest with one another. Um, having people that you can talk to about this thing. Having people that you can confess to. We've mentioned this before. Confession is one of the most powerful practices of the church historically that we have so tragically avoided and cast aside. And as Protestants, perhaps we, we, we looked at a Catholic practice of it and thought it was kind of ritualistic and meaningless, and so we just kind of threw it out, the baby with the bathwater. But without true confession, whether it's in a small group that meets every other week here at the church, whether it's with like one or two close people that you have, without confession, secrets grow and they grow more powerfully. AA rule, you're only a as sick as your darkest secret. I've found that to be true over and over and over again. You need a place where you can be honest. You need a place where you can be safe. You need a place that will give you help. For parents in here, we've got a lot of parents in the room in here. Let me give you some advice as someone who um, was a kid not too long ago, like eight months ago, and then... Again, right, it was like a little less than a month ago, I was with 600 kids, had a few conversations with some of them. Here's my, here's my going rule. Not because I'm pessimistic, I'm really not. Those of you who know me, and I'm, I'm one of the less pessimistic preachers that are out there. I think the world is really not as bad as most like fundamentalist Christian preachers want you to believe. But here's my rule. If, if, if there's a boy 12 years or older about, changes a little bit based on the person. Um, and they have not told you that they are in some aspects struggling with pornography, it's because they don't trust you enough. I've just not met, I've just not met it. I mean, I just, I just haven't seen that happen. Um, and I'm not talking about like, okay, this person's like seriously messed up, right? But I'm like, no, they've got friends, it's around, it's happening. Um, as someone who's had this happen in my family, um, and in families close to me, I can tell you this, your kid is so far more advanced with technology than you will ever be that it is the biggest joke in the world. So you should be using filters and you should be checking search histories and you should be doing that about six years earlier than you think you should start doing it. That might be an understatement. I mean, I'm not trying to be glib about this. I can tell you out of all of the kids that I've talked to, when their parents had the sex talk with them, including myself, um, it was hilariously late. Well past um, <laughs> when they first found out about these things. And usually like one third of the things that they already knew and we're perhaps someone engaged with. Um, which, guess what? I'm not a parent. I'm, God, it's got to be uncomfortable. I don't know how you would do that. I don't know how it happens. 
But I, here's what I know. If you want to be a family and you want to have kids that are raised in this world of, in, of temptation and you want them to be faithful, then you need to create honest avenues of communication and you need to do it earlier than you could possibly imagine and you need to have grace and love and you need to allow your children to grow just like you're growing and you need to be involved and you need to be like Jesus is for us, like God is for us in the scriptures, more than just rule-based and punishment consequent-based. You need to sell people on life, not on punishment and fear. When, when Jesus is talking about lust here, and he's talking about adultery, um, I, I, we come back to this a lot, just like with the murder command. This is part of the Ten Commandments, you shall not adulter, Right? God is giving a vision of a community. Here's how life flourishes in creation. You don't kill each other. It doesn't work very well. No one likes each other. No one trusts each other. You don't steal each other's wives. It doesn't work like that. You're not satisfied. Your partner's not satisfied. The community's not satisfied. The sexual practices that the scriptures teach us to start to develop and inhabit and grow at are not there to divide us or to, to, to take away joy from us, that we might be devoid of satisfaction. They're there so that we might be whole, functioning, beautiful people, so that we might be able to worship properly, so that we might be able to know and be known by God fully, so that we might have lives that are full of the life and the joy and the peace and the satisfaction the Spirit promises to those in whom He dwells. And just as our practices shape our character, our sexual practices shape our character very powerfully. And it's not just kids. There are adults who struggle with pornography. There are adults who struggle with going places they shouldn't go during the week to indulge in certain things. There are adults in our community who struggle with those things. I don't say that shamefully because there's no shame in the community of God where Christ has taken our shame on the cross. The only reason I know these things is because we can confess because there's forgiveness already available. But I can't say we struggle with that. That's not an us versus them type of thing. That's not a look at that crazy world out there. That's it in this room right now. Around the seats, around the tables. So we need accountability, we need community, we need to be honest. We need therapy. There's no shame in, in, in therapy. Hopefully not, because I've paid a lot of money for it. We need to not underestimate the transforming grace we receive through other spiritual practices. As we learn to worship, as we learn to dig into the scriptures as we learn to engage in community beyond just confession and accountability. Those things have a way of growing Christ in us, growing the Spirit's work and presence in us in a way that chokes out these self-defeating habits, these sins that threaten to separate us from the kingdom. Jesus comes and he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, if you are lustfully intenting after other people, you're committing adultery. He says, cut off the things that are leading you to this. And he says this not as a threat. 
there is a threat kind of in it, right? There, there is judgment there to be found. But he says it as a promise. But he, because he's coming to build a kingdom where you and I are invited to experience joy and fullness and patience and peace and love and relationship. And just as we come to the table every week to worship and remember and celebrate the one who gave his life for us that we might have life, the same as that offer for us in this passage and passages like it. Jesus has come, not as Moses, but as God himself saying, this is where God's life is found for you. And I know it can sound so, I don't know, for me, old school Baptist teacher. Don't have fun with each other. Don't dance too closely. I know it can sound so, I don't want you to smile and enjoy the gifts God's given you. I just don't know what, I, I, I truly am in this moment not sure what I can, I can reveal, but I can tell you this, I had a conversation once, sitting across from a kid who had been abused by another kid, both old enough and knew what they were doing. And the kid who was abused for years right back there ask me am I going to hell because I've participated in this and this was not the most evil kid you'd ever met in your life the kid who abused him was not the most evil kid you'd ever met in his life but these things had, had been around them and no one was watching and no one was encouraging and no one was building it into them And these are extreme examples, I understand that. But this is is where these things grow. This is what they eventually become. And this is not what you want to experience. This is not what you want your kid to ask a pastor one day. This is not the room that you want to be in one day. And this is not where Jesus is inviting us to go in, in a command like this. Jesus is saying, look, there's this broken world full of death and pain and sickness and tragedy and abuse and war. People taking advantage of one another. People destroying each other from the inside out. But I've come to to blaze a new trail. And this good gift from God, this gift of sex, is a part of that good trail that I'm blazing. But to participate in it, to enjoy it, you're going to have to leave some things behind. You're going to have to develop and walk in some new practices. And when you do, you'll find a life that's so amazing that you'll never regret anything you've sacrificed. That giving up your right hand, you do it again in an instant gouging out your eye, you would have wished you'd have done it years earlier. 
It's just a life of love and joy and peace and fulfillment. That's not an offer in a million years, sometime in eternity, but right now, today, this afternoon, in your homes, in your families, in your backyards. And Jesus is saying, walk into this with me. Walk into this with me. So my prayer is, by the grace of God, the, the help and courage of the Holy Spirit, that we would continue to receive Jesus' teachings for what they are, a gift and an invitation. Even when they cause us to do hard work and to convictingly look at our own hearts and our own lifestyles, that we would rejoice in the life that he's come to bring us and that we would follow after it with everything that we've got. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the love that you have given us. We thank you for the world that you have created, a world that includes so many.